Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. I'm Kathy, your host, and this week our our podcast takes us to the state of Texas. Before we go on to our case this week, I'm going to give a shout out to the podcast Real Crime Profile, since I will be talking about them later on in the episode. The hosts of this podcast, Laura, Jim, and Lisa, are wonderful at what they do, and Laura is an advocate of coercive control laws in the UK and has been fighting for them to be here in the US also. And I'm not going to lie, I learned a lot from this trio. There are a lot of things that we say thinking it's a joke and not realizing that it's not okay. As an example, talking about stalking. Like, for example, I was stalking you, haha, or I was stalking you on your Facebook page. You really shouldn't say those things, even as a joke. And this isn't because people cannot take a joke. It's because people have been stalked and they went through a horrible experience. And technically, if you said it in front of law enforcement, you can get in trouble. So moral of this is pick and choose your words wisely. And I have to admit that even I'm guilty of saying the wrong things. No one's perfect. But like they say, knowledge is power, right? Now back to the case. We're heading to Texas. Why Texas, you ask? Well, the reason is that a woman who had grown up here in Erie, went to school, went on to college, and then started a career, found herself living in Texas. But what she didn't know was that she would have someone from her past follow her. This week, we will be going to talk about coercive control, what it is, what signs to look for, and how this could have applied to this case. Do I know exactly what happened in this case? No. However, even in certain articles, there were signs. And the reason I don't know everything is because, one, it just happened a few months back and things are moving even more slowly. Two, there really wasn't a lot of articles on this particular case. And what there was, it was the same thing over and over again. And what was in the articles was that it was him that was interested in the relationship, not her. So if it wasn't a mutual decision, how can you call it a relationship? And what exactly is coercive control? According to a WebMD article by Lauren Page Kennedy, coercive control starts out just like any other relationship, but there's always a but. When a couple first meets the man, and remember this can go both ways, seems especially interested in the woman and in everything that she does. And at first, this might seem flattering because, face it, we've all had that friend who has complained or have been in a relationship where the guy never listened. But this guy is involving himself in everything. Where you go, where you work, what friends you're hanging out with, maybe even putting pressure on you to have sex, but you choose to ignore those signs because he's so, quote unquote, concerned about you and what you're doing. Nobody has ever shown that much interest ever. And as the relationship moves forward, so does his efforts on keeping tabs on you, reading your emails, text messages while you're in the shower at first. He starts to stalk you, wondering, if you've been lying to him about where you've been going and telling you what you can and cannot wear. And this isn't just 
hey honey, how does this look, or does this look fat on me kind of thing. This is full out, don't wear that. Why are you dressed like a whore kind of deal. Or you shouldn't be wearing a swimsuit. You don't need to go swimming or to the beach or to the pool. And at first you might fight it and go anyway, and those fights will be crazy. Then you just stop going because you think, why go? It's just not worth it. Then we get into the controlling of your money. Yes, I said your money, not his. He could have the worst credit in history, and yet all of a sudden you're terrible with your money. Why are you spending your money on this or that? And you're wondering where that has come from, from out of left field, because before him you were doing just fine, but it must be okay, right? This is what being in a loving relationship is like because the last guy couldn't give two figs what you did. But then, and here's where you become totally blind, he slowly isolates you from your friends and family. If your friends or family live far away, it's easy for him to put, a, put on a face and act a certain way for a short time. But for those that live close by and have caught on, he will start to cause some friction between you. And I could be, it could be something small at first, like, I don't think they like me kind of deal, or I have to admit, this is one of my favorite. I don't celebrate holidays, so let's start our own family traditions. Even though you might only have been dating for a short period of time, and I'm talking two months or so, to me that seems a bit drastic of a change to your holidays and a huge red flag if I ever saw one. And I know that there are people who have anxiety with strangers. However, using that excuse for every holiday or family get-together only goes so far. Now, if the girl slash guy slash person, because we can never assume this happens in all types of relationships, if the half that is being coercively controlled balks, the other half could start out by, you know, with a small slap in the face or a twist of the arm, literally not figure, figuratively, then it can escalate from there to sexual assault or full-out beatings or threats to kill you or the children. And according to the website, these relationships can last up to five and a half years. And the number I want you to keep in mind is seven. It can take up to seven times to leave the person. It's not so easy just to pick up and leave. And according to this article, 86% of low-level domestic abuse is considered coercive control. 14% is considered batter women's syndrome, where the abuse is so bad that the person had an obvious injury, such as black eye, broken bone, or some other injury. Think about that, 14%. But here's the thing. Coercive control isn't punishable here in the U.S., but in the U.K., if the person is a re repeat offender, they risk a five-year prison sentence. And in the U.K., there is a list of things that are considered coercive control, and according to an article from the BBC by Patrick Cowling, the figures for the first two and a half years of this particular new law on coercive control the, behavior, the controlling behavior shows that the majority of cases were dropped without a charge. And the data obtained by the BBC from 33 police forces in England and Wales for January 2016 to July 2018 showed there were 7,034 arrests. However, only 
1,157 cases ended with someone being charged. There were 4,837 cases that were dropped by police or prosecutors, the figures show. Figures show. Campaigners said the data was, quote, deeply alarming for women. Although the Home Office said that there had been 235 successful convictions since the law was introduced. Now, why did I talk about this before I went into the case at hand? Kara Ann Savage Bonowitz. She grew up in Erie, PA. She was a graduate of Mercyhurst Prep and had earned her undergraduate degree pre-medical at the University of Rochester in New York. Kara then went on to attend Pennsylvania State University College of Medicine, then completed her residency in diagnostic radiology at the University of North Carolina. Kara had been an interventional radiologist who had practiced at various locations in Virginia, Indiana, and then it took her to Texas. And this happened over a 20-year period of her career. At this point of Kara's life, she was working as a radiologist near Dallas, Texas. On the morning of April 3rd, 2020, one of Kara's family members went to check on her and they, because they hadn't heard from her in several days. The family member went to Kara's home on Wyndham Lane and found Kara's lifeless body. When police arrived, they discovered that Kara had been the victim of homicide. She had been stabbed multiple times. Well, who could have done this to her? Who would have been so cruel as to take someone's life who made it their life's work to help people? To answer this question, police would have to go back six months prior to when Kara had contacted them about someone who had come back into her life from her past, Michael A. Perro III. So let's take a moment to talk about Michael. Back in December of 2000, according to JustTheLaw.com, Para was indicted by a grand jury for first-degree kidnapping, one count, first-degree armed robbery, count two, second-degree aggravated assault, count three, third-degree theft of movable property auto, count four, third-degree unlawful possession of a weapon, which was a knife, count five, and third-degree of a weapon, a knife again, for unlawful purpose, count six. These charges stem from Pero assaulting his mother, his own mother, and forcing her to drive him to the bank to cash a check from her checking account to use without her permission. This was the testimony from the hearing. When we summarize the facts from the record, the 911 operator, Diane Gorlaski, testified on February 5th, 2000. She received a call from Ramsey Post Office that a woman had come in and said to call the police. The woman later identified as defendant's mother, Eleanor Perro, told Gorlaski that she had, quote, jumped out of her car because defendant, quote, made her go to the bank to take money that defendant beat her up that the defendant had a knife and threatened to kill her, and that defendant was, quote, very dangerous. Officer Angelo Lamana of the Ramsey Police Department testified that he responded to the post office and found Eleanor crying and shaking. Glasses were broken. She complained of double vision. She was, quote, wincing in pain. 
and she complained of pain in her neck, in her back, side, ribs, and left elbow. The officer noticed redness on Eleanor's hands, neck, and jaw. He had called an ambulance, but Eleanor refused treatment. Instead, she went with Lamana to the police headquarters where she gave a statement to Sergeant Robert Rapp. In her statement, Eleanor said that she was 58 years old and that she, had, she was sitting in her dining room table having breakfast when the defendant, quote, walked up to her and put his face directly in front of her face and then grabbed her robe that the defendant picked her up threw her onto the floor that while she was on the floor defendant grabbed her three to four times pulling her up and throwing her down again and kicked her all over her body that defendant poked her with a three or with a four to five inch kitchen knife putting the knife on her ribs in the center of her chest and one in her nostrils that the defendant choked her with his hands and that she was dizzy during the attack and that the assault lasted 15 to 20 minutes and that during the attack, defendant was making delusional remarks saying that he did not come back to live in the house with video bugs so that, quote, they could watch him. Eleanor also explained that her son believed that the FBI wanted to, quote, clone him for his DNA because he had superpowers. I'm not sure where that comes into play, but if you look it up, Paro is mentioned in articles that he thought he had superpowers or was, quote, Superman. Eleanor also stated that the defendant asked her how much cash she had on her. She told him how much she had, gave it to him, and then he asked her how much money she had in her checking account and told her to get dressed because he wanted her to drive to the bank and cash a check. After Eleanor told the defendant she had $2,500 in the bank, he told her to write a check for $2,000 and said, quote, I'm trying to think of a reason to let you live. Again, remember, this is his own mother. Eleanor continued in her statement that defendant escorted her to the bedroom where, she, where he ripped the phone cord out of the wall. He left her alone to change and went downstairs to disable the kitchen phone as well. After Eleanor finished dressing, she made out a check for 2000 Defendant told her to get in her car and drive. She indicated that she was taken under duress, and Eleanor further stated she drove to her bank, drive through cashed the check, and handed the defendant 2000 A bank employee later verified this transaction. Eleanor said that she then left the bank, drove on Main Street, and pulled over and jumped from the car because, quote, it was my best chance to free myself because there were a lot of people around and I wasn't going back to the house with him. Quote, she then ran into the post office. De defendant drove away in Eleanor's car without her permission. Uh, the car was later recovered in Connecticut. Now, at the time of her statement, Eleanor complained of body aches, pain in her back, left elbow, blurry vision, and the police officer had called an ambulance at that time, and Eleanor accepted the medical treatment and went to the hospital. And she declined to sign her statement, but, you know, because she was having a hard time concentrating and seeing. And Eleanor later returned to the police station and, to sign her statement, and at that time, she also advised Rapp that the knife had that he, uh, Pero had used had penetrated her nightgown and t-shirt and that she had sustained two cuts to her lower left rib cage. Now the sergeant noted that Eleanor had bruising on her left ear, chin, jaw, ring finger, left rear shoulder blade and chest. 
She also had two scratches along the left side of her abdomen, which Rapp believed were consistent with a knife wound. Now, after this in incident, Harrow was arrested in Connecticut and incarcerated on unrelated charges. He filed a motion to dismiss this in this case based on the violation of the interstate agreement on detainers, which was in, implicated in transporting him from custody to Connecticut to New Jersey in the motion, but that motion was denied. So, but Eleanor ends up testifying at a domestic violence trial before a family uh, part judge in January of 2004 that the defendant had put the knife blade in her nostril and poked her in the ribs and wrists and that he made her write the check and go to the bank. But at the trial on direct examination by the state, Eleanor admitted that she wrote numerous letters to the defendant in which she asked him whether she should testify. She also wrote that she would do whatever the defendant said and she would formulate a plan to deal with this case. She would also not testify and would do whatever was necessary to help him. She told Pero that she wanted all of this to end and wanted to quote start over with him and she offered to pay for a lawyer to represent him but he declined she also sent him money to pay for his trial exhibits but Pero refused all of his mother's attempts to communicate with him now remember he accosted her he beat on her for this money he kidnapped her stole her car after beating on her and yet because this is her son she gave birth to this this person and what she's seeing is not the monster she's seeing her child that's what she's remembering it doesn't matter at that point of what he did what she's remembering is that little boy but she's also, depending on how many times he had beat on her in the past, what she's remembering is the child she raised. She's not remembering the monster. And that's the problem. It's the I'm sorry's. How many times is that going to take? You know, obviously that's not coercive behavior. That's battered women's syndrome. But at the same point in time, this guy is not a very nice guy. He did horrible things to his own mother. Now, Pero, he acted as his own attorney and he thought he could handle it, but he ended up not being able to handle it. And he tried to do the whole, well, you know, I thought I could do this. And even though the judge asked him at the very, very beginning, look, this is what it's gonna be. Can you do this? Oh, yes, 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 I can. But he ended up trying to play it off. Well, I didn't really know what I was doing. The judge said, too bad, so sad. You're, you're doing this on your own. Anyways, he ends up getting extradited back to Jersey. But taking this back to Texas, this guy ends up getting back out. Harrow makes his way, for whatever reason, down to Texas. And he had it in his mind to look up Kara Ann Savage Bonowitz from the beginning. In his mind, he wanted to quote unquote reconnect with Kara. But I don't think Kara knew what he was thinking. But what he did do, you know, did he look her up on Facebook? Possibly, because think about the information that we put on there. We put on there where we live, where we work, 
who we're in a relationship with when we go on vacation, pictures of our family, pictures of our home, names of our family, which is everything that Pero needed. Pero used information to find Kara and started to call her employers. You heard me right. He called her employers. Now, Kara did the right thing, and she called the police and told them that this person, someone that she had dated once, yes, once, in college, and then had no contact with, and now all of a sudden is calling her employers. Now, I have to admit, like I said before, there isn't much information about this, but from that Kara calling the police six months prior, then on April 3rd, 2020, one of Kara's family members went to her home to check on her because they hadn't heard from her in a couple of days. They unfortunately found Kara dead. And when the police came, they noticed that she had been dead for a couple of days, but that she had been stabbed to death. And in that investigation, it showed that Pero could have been involved and then they issued a, a warrant for his arrest and Pero was picked up and charged on April 8th on a general count of murder and at that point was being held on a $2 million bond. And at that point, that's where it sits for right now. And when I wrote this, this was written a few weeks back and I had checked on, checked and there were no updates at that point. But however, this is where I have a problem. In all of the articles that I read about this case, there were three at the most that stated that when Pero moved to Tex Texas, that when he tried to, quote, reconnect, the way he went about it was going through Kara's employers. Who does that? Someone that is controlling, it, it, you know, they have a controlling personality. All the other articles just stated that he moved to the area to reconnect with Kara. I'm not a mind reader, but unless it has to do with my own family, so I, I cannot tell you what this guy was thinking, but someone who's trying to reconnect doesn't go about it through your bosses. This guy had a very violent past, even with his own mother, and spent time behind bars. So I can only imagine what he would have been like with a significant other. According to the CDC, one in four women and one in seven men will experience physical violence by their intimate par partner at some point during their lifetimes. At least five million acts of domestic violence occur annually to women aged 18 years and older with over three million involving men. This is just in the US. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe, severe intimate partner physical violence, intimate partner contact sexual violence, and or intimate partner stalking with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, post-traumatic stress disorder, use of victim services, contraction of sexually transmitted diseases. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence 
by an intimate partner. This includes a range of behaviors, example, slapping, shoving, pushing, and in some cases might not be considered domestic violence. One in seven women and one in 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. One in 10 women have been raped by an intimate partner, and data is unavailable on male victims. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe vis physical violence, example, beating, burning, strangling by an intimate partner in their lifetime. One in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner during their lifetime to the point in which they felt very fearful or believed that they or someone close to them would be harmed or killed. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. The presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crimes. Women between the ages of 18 to 24 are most commonly abused by an intimate partner, and 19% of domestic violence involves a weapon. Domestic victimization is correlated with a higher rate of depression and suicidal behavior, and only 34% of people who are injured by intimate partners have received medical care for their injuries. With homicide, a study of intimate partner homicides found that 20% of victims were not the intimate partners themselves, but family members, friends, neighbors, persons who intervened, law enforcement responders, or bystanders. 72% of murder-suicides involve an intimate partner. 94% of the victims of these murder-suicides are female. This is just the stats for domestic violence and homicides. This doesn't go into the statistics for rape and or for child abuse and or for breaking the domestic abuse down into LGBTQ. You can keep breaking these numbers down over and over again. No matter how you look at it, both sides are vulnerable, both men and women. It happens, but you cannot berate the person for staying. It's easy to sit there and say, well, why don't you just leave? Why, why do you put up with that? It takes a lot of courage for those of domestic violence to leave. And I know I've used this number before and it's usually the magical, and the magical number is seven. It will and can, can take up to seven times for the person to leave that relationship. And there's, and, and like I talked about before, the podcast Real Crime Profile and the episode to listen to, in my opinion, is her name was Molly McLaren. This was a wonderful episode that talks about domestic abuse and how one side is pushed aside and can fill them with despair because even though they did everything they were supposed to, it didn't save them. Now, I normally put these at the end of my episodes. However, the resources for victims and survivors of domestic violence, the National Crisis Organize, Organizations and Assistance, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-799-SAFE. The website is www.ndvh.org. A National Dating Abuse Hotline is 1-866-331-9474. The website for that is www.lovis.org. 
R-E-S-P-E-C-T.org or www.loveisrespect.org. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-7233. Again, 1-800-799-7233. And I will post this number and information along with my sources on my Facebook page. But before I end this episode, I want to tell you about a woman in Virginia who was killed by her significant other. I found this article on a People News article online that goes with the above story. April Logan had a protective order against Matthew Coligo, and she was trying to leave him. But less than one week, yes, you heard me right, one week after her PFA had expired, Matthew Caligo now stands accused of murdering April Logan. The Saturday after the PFA had expired, April's body was found in her apartment after calling 911. Later that day, the police arrested Matthew Caligo and charged him with one count of second degree murder, use of a firearm in the commission of a felony and discharge of a firearm in an occupied dwelling. At that point, it was unknown if Caligo had been before a judge or whether or not he had obtained an attorney. The statement from the police said that they had received a call from 911 at 7.30 a.m. and arrived to find April suffering from her injuries and that she was later pronounced dead by paramedics. They were told that the two lived together, but April's mother told the police that April was in the process of leaving Caligo. At this time, it, it wasn't known why Caligo killed April. Why indeed? And why wait until the PFA ex had expired? What really made the difference? Was it because April was in fact leaving Caligo? It's not unheard of. The sad truth of it is that Caligo probably thought if he couldn't have her, no one else could. And it boiled down to no more than that. I wish I had a happier note to end on, but the fact remains that domestic abuse affects more than you realize. Whether it's physical or mental, either way, it's the same. If you enjoyed this episode and this is your first time, please go back and download the other episodes and they are available on these platforms, Facebook, Podbean.com, Spotify, and iTunes. They are available at All Things Erie from Erie PA, Erie with three E's. Also, Instagram and Twitter at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to go to either Instagram or Twitter at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y, and I will get back to you as soon as possible. The same with Facebook at All Things Erie from Erie PA. That's Erie with three E's. Domestic abuse affects so many lives. The effects of it rip can ripple throughout the home from the adults to the children. So please, if you know someone that is going through domestic violence, please be patient with them. And like I said before, it's not easy to just pick up and leave. The magical number is seven. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kathy signing off.